This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Planet Microcap podcast. And joining me today is someone that I've been really looking forward to uh, having come on the podcast. Uh, I've heard her interviews with uh, some of our favorite podcasts out there from Tobias Carlisle and, and, and others. And uh, she is, it, it's Perth Toll. Let's, let's start there. <laughs> Perth Toll. She's the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. Um, just to give you guys a quick background on uh, uh, on the Freedom 100 or the Life and Liberty Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index is a freedom-weighted EM equity strategy that uses personal and economic freedom metrics as primary factors in the investment selection process. Now, I could continue to read off her website or we could just have Perth give the full wrap right here because she's here. Perth, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. And, and first things first, how, how are you holding up through the uh, pandemic and quarantine? Everyone okay? Yeah, no, everyone's good here. Everyone's uh, healthy and we're uh, hold, uh, holding up okay. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. So yeah. let, let, let's dive right in. You know, I, I'd love to start with your background and, and really how, how did you arrive to where you're currently at today? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in both China and the U.S. as a child. So I, I was born in Beijing, and, and then I lived there until I was about nine years old. And then I came to the U.S. Um, and lived here until I went back to Hong Kong after college and lived there for about a year. And um, when I was in Hong Kong, I traveled throughout China to you know Beijing to Shanghai, and I realized what a difference uh, freedom or living in a free society made in my life, um, and how different my life would have been had I stayed over there. Um, and, and I also saw the difference that freedom made in the markets in these different places, in Hong Kong market, in uh, you know, China markets, and in the US markets. So I realized that uh, you know, there was a lot of excitement at that time when I was over there. It was around 2003, 2004. And uh, there was a lot of you know, growth in China. They have been opening up you know, economic freedoms a lot. And um, the China business was a very exciting thing. Um, but I realized from some of the things that I saw that there was a lack of uh, personal freedoms, of civil and economic freedom, civil and political freedoms, even though they had opened up on the economic freedom side. And uh, it made an impact on me. I didn't know how um, that would manifest itself until later on. Um, when I came back to the States, I ended up working at Fidelity for uh, about 10 years, if you count the time that I was off with the new baby. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I had a lot of clients that kind of felt the same way that I did. And this was a time when emerging markets investing was pretty hot. And, uh, you know, a lot of clients wanted to be a part of that, but they came from countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia and China as well that just didn't want to participate in those types of autocratic regimes um, in their emerging markets investing. But emerging markets funds were very heavy um, in China, especially, but also in these, some of these other countries. And right now, as we speak, um, emerging markets index funds have about 40% allocation to China, 
um, or 38 to 40%, depending on if you're looking at something like EEM or IEMG or VWO. VWO has 40%, the other two have about 38. Um, and they, in addition to that, also have, for example, 2% to Saudi Arabia, 3% to Qatar. You know, there's also allocations to Russia, to Turkey, to Egypt. So there's a lot of autocracies in emerging markets, just the nature of emerging markets. And, um, you know, some of these countries are getting a very heavy uh, concentrated weight. So I wanted to create something that would give investors a way to invest in emerging markets in a diversified manner um, without having to have so much in these unfree regimes. So, so we do freedom weighting. So instead of market capitalization weighting the countries, we um, freedom weight them. So the higher freedom countries get a higher weight, the lower freedom countries get a lower weight, and the worst offenders as far as personal and economic freedoms are excluded altogether. And so we have no allocation to China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And we have higher allocations to countries like Taiwan, South Korea, um, Poland, and Chile. Got it. And we're going to break all that down because I, I, I have a, a thousand questions. You know, I've done, I've gone <laughs> on the website, I've, I've looked at the fund and, and you know, I, I think a lot of people want to try and understand better, you know, this idea of freedom waiting because it's okay. so different and unique, you know. Um, but before we get there, one quick follow up on your background. I mean, what about investing and just the financial markets just that, that got you excited that be, to now it's your passion? You know what? I just liked um, being able to participate in the growth in various companies or various countries. Um, it's it's a, it's a it's a way to kind of express my um, preferences or values or you know belief in the the benefits of freedom. For example, um, it's it's a form of ex expression for me, I guess. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. No, I mean. It's interesting. We just had Maya Peterson on and she was, she was talking oh, about, she's it. awesome. She's the best. I, I'm such a fan. And, yeah. uh, um, uh, what is she so, like 18? Eight, she's 17. <laughs> you just well, published you her second book. Yeah, no, I just got a copy of it and I I'm, I'm speechless. Like I literally, I haven't posted it. I haven't said thank you because I have no words. Like, so <laughs> I, I can't wait. I can't wait to read. It. I, I in, in fairness, I hadn't read the first one yet, you know, and then she just published yeah. the second one. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to read them. My kid read the first one early oh, bird okay. and, and she wants to invest now. So, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm hoping that it's my, I'm hoping it's my daughter's first book or investing book as well. Yeah. But, uh, but, but my, but my main point in saying that in, and it relates to what you just said is this idea of, um, you know, a chance to express your own values. It's a chance yeah. to have your voice heard, you know, and, and really have a, an active interest in some of these companies that you're at the ETF level, you know, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really cool to see that, you know? Yeah. I mean, of course it's good for growing money as well. And, you know, actually, <laughs> yes. Doesn't hurt. That's for <laughs> sure. Um, okay. So now let's, let's segue back freedom waiting. You know, can you, can you explain a little bit further about what this means and, and how you calculate that? Yeah, so we use metrics from three different think tanks, um, the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom out in Germany. So when we first started this project, uh, there weren't really any quantified human freedom metrics. There were economic freedom metrics that were quantified, but not personal and um, personal freedom metrics, such as civil and political freedom. So um, I wanted something that combined all three. And so um, at first, we came up with our own system and we kind of put a provisional patent on it. 
Um, and part of that system was the economic freedom side, which I used the Fraser um, Economic Freedom of the World Index. Um, and so I had contacts at Fraser regarding that. And then when I went to score countries, when I actually started this company and went to score countries and you know get the, the metrics, um, I went to their website and um, they I, I saw on there something about their new human freedom index. And I was like, what's this? So I looked at it and it is a combination of uh, personal freedoms and economic freedoms. And they score 162 countries. Um, I just used the 26 countries in the emerging markets data set. Um, and they, you know, look at 76 different variables uh, for, for civil, political, and economic freedoms and combines it all together into one score. Um, so I just contacted my, my, you know, contact there, Fred, and I was like, hey, can I, can I use this instead of what I'm using? And then we compared notes and they were almost identical. And so I'm, I'm using theirs instead of my own at this time because it gives me that third-party objectivity. I operate completely independently from them and they operate completely independently from us. So there is no influencing of scores of any type and I couldn't game the system to you know, include or exclude any country. So, so you know, that made it much easier for us to do the index. It not only saves me you know, like four months of scoring out of the year, <laughs> but um, it gives us that, that objectivity. And so um, these are the metrics that I use. And then I just use that combined country score. So we have all the 76 variables um, accounted for in there. Um, and just to give you an example of the variables. So some variables for the rights to life, are, well, I categorize them into rights to, rights to life, liberty, and property. Um, so life is like terrorism, trafficking, wars, um, torture, disappearances, uh, Women's rights are in there. There's five proxies for women's rights, such as missing women, which, you know, there's 30 million missing women in China because of the one child policy. Um, there's and the, the, another proxy is uh, women's inheritance rights, you know, and then um, women's rights to children after a divorce. Um, there's FGM. It's very unpleasant. If you know what that is, you know what it is. If not, let's not talk about it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, women's rights. Um, and then Rights to liberty are your kind of political freedoms, like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the media, um, freedom of religion, and so forth, due process, right? And then your economic freedoms are the um, property rights. So taxation, rule of law, freedom to trade internationally, soundness of monetary policy, business regulations, and so forth. So all of these combined together is the, the you know, we use the, the combination score, um, for each country and turn those into country weights. So countries that have a higher score get a higher weight, countries that have a lower score get a lower weight. And the methodology um, algorithm does have some countries ending up with no weight at all. Got it. So this is gonna be quite possibly my dumbest question. I think I may have asked on the <laughs> podcast, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, because you know some people don't know what the main difference between these two things are. So here we go. Okay. Dumbest question ever. How, how, do you, how do you calculate the difference between, you know, what it, country now is still an emerging market country and one that is now developed? You know, I, uh, they're, they're, I have the dumbest answer ever for that question. Oh, so, awesome. <laughs> so we don't. Um, the IMF, you know, doesn't. Who, who we depend on for that is the big indexer. So like MSCI, FTSE, you know, those guys really set the standard. And um, I currently, I currently um, use the same ones at MSCI. We're not, we're not committing to that. We're not saying we'll always will, but we, we currently do. Um, the difference there is MSCI includes South Korea in, in emerging markets and FTSE doesn't. FTSE, you know, South Korea is a developed market. Uh, but 
you know, we just did that because South Korea and Taiwan are very free markets. And so, you know, it's, it makes sense to have them in there. And also we have no China. So when you have no China, you want some markets that are kind of correlated to China, like South Korea and Taiwan, you know, as a bigger market. So um, just to kind of have somewhat more correlation to the benchmarks. So, so yeah, I, I don't know how they decide that. And um, we just, but they set the standard. So we just go with the standard. <laughs> I just, you know, it was one of those things when like uh, we were talking offline and, and, you, you know, I, I, I was, I started thinking about it a little bit more. I'm like, you know yeah. what? Like, I, and it really like South Korea and Taiwan are huge. You know, it, it, it's arguably that they're not emerging markets anymore, you know? Yeah. And if you look at IMF um, data, they're very much developed. So, you know, we don't decide that the industry decides that. Um, and I think what they use certain things like the strength of their institutions, you know, the size of their GDP, you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, but that's part of their methodology and um, we're not big enough to set standards yet. So, you know, we just go with what the accepted standards are. And that's a, a lot of our clients gave us that feedback too. So they're like, we benchmark to such and such. So can you kind of, you know, be somewhat close to that? Yeah. Got it. <laughs> All right, so let so let's talk about the ETF construction itself. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how countries and then of course the companies within those countries are then added to the ETF? Yeah, so uh, so yeah, so the country level, you know, once we have the the country weights, right? As far as ETF construction, we'd also need the um, security weights. So the securities, we just take the ten largest, most liquid out of each mark each country that's included, um, and then we weight them, market cap weight them within their country weights. We do exclude state-owned enterprises, and that's just to bring the economic theme, economic freedom theme all the way through, because we do think that, you know, the less government interference in private markets, the better. So, you know, and, and a, a state-owned enterprise is probably going to be less efficiently run because they're answering to two masters, the state and shareholders, and typically the state will win out in that scenario. So, yeah. um, so, so yeah, so, so, you know, that's the only thing we do is exclude state-owned enterprises. We don't add any other factors. Like we have no value, momentum, size factors or anything like that. Um, and that's from client feedback as well. Um, before we launched the product, they said, you know, if we wanted a emerging markets value fund, we could get that ourselves. So, you know, they, they didn't want any of that. They were like, your, your real innovation is freedom. And so we just isolated the freedom factor um, for this first product. Now that's not to say in the future, we may not add other factors, but right now for the first flagship product, um, we felt that um, the freedom factor should be isolated and to see, because it's the first time it's been done, to see that it has a place in the market, that there is demand for it or not, and then go from there. And then how often is the, the fund or the ETF, excuse me, the ETF recalibrated? It's once a year because the, the country data comes out once a year. Got it. Okay. So then this is, this is, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but here we go. We're doing it. Another, another, I hope it's a good question. We'll, we'll go from here. You know, let's say, you know, during that year or just after it's recalibrated, or it doesn't matter when it happens, you know, let's say you have a country in the fund that's really fluctuating in terms of kind of the news flow coming out of it. You know, I'm going, for instance, to your, to the, the index right now. And, you know, I, I won't name specific ones, but, you know, like in the Philippines, I guess, for, oh, yes. okay, I just named it as specific, <laughs> you know, but in the Philippines, you know, you have, you, you have a, a person running the country that's on the fringe a little bit, you know, like. He's crazy. Yes. So, <laughs> so a lot of right. these, yeah. yeah. Put it <laughs> so nice a lot of here. these, 
Yeah. A lot of these markets are, you know, still autocracies are coming out of autocracies. We get that about the Philippines quite often, actually. Um, so, you know, we don't look at, and we have a small percentage of the Philippines, right? So it's one of those on the cusp countries. Um, so, so on, we don't look at things that are in the news. I mean, we do, but we don't make changes based on headlines. Um, what we make changes are on, are on are based on the data. So we are completely dependent on the scores um, to make our rebalance, to make our changes. Now we do um, have, we do have a, a rule that says it's a freedom decline momentum rule, but this is also done at the annual rebalance. So it's not like during, during the year we do this. Um, and that just says that if a country declines too fast on a particular scale that we use, um, that that country is kicked out of the index, even if it's already in the, currently in the index. So Turkey, for example, triggered that rule in 2000, um, beginning of 2018. So they were in the, in the index in 2017, but they had, their score had fallen so far and so fast um, that they were dropped because of the freedom decline momentum rule. Um, and then as far as, there was something else that you mentioned that I want to address, but now I can't, I'm completely blanking. <laughs> so, I, well, I think we were just talking about, you oh, know, yeah. yeah. So, oh, sorry. So media, right? So, so there's been a lot of uh, news about Philippines, also recently about Poland. Um, they, they're they're kind of on the decline as far as their judicial independence and things like that. But some of these things, remember, we're, we're looking at um, kind of policies and politics, which is another thing that makes emerging markets emerging markets is that they are where, you know, politics matter as much as economics, right? So that's, I think, another way that some people define emerging markets. Um, but a lot of these policies um, can be in place, but not show up in the market for quite some time. So for example, um, you know, with these think tanks, we have a freedom meeting every year and I, you know, have the, the privilege of being at some of these meetings. And in one of these meetings, I believe it was 2015 or 2016, um, oh, 2015. So the Poland delegate told me uh, that so they have think tanks all around the world as part of this network and you know, they come and join the meetings from everywhere. So the Poland delegate at this particular meeting told me that, hey, um, we might be electing into power kind of a, a ultra right wing government that's a little bit, um, a little, you know, extremists in some measure. Um, and they, they're going to probably get a constitutional majority. And if they do, then things might go a little crazy. So you might see some of these things that, which, you know, I do see now, such as, you know, judicial independence being, being kind of um, declined. Um, and, uh, but he said that won't show up in the markets for two or three years after that. And so it happened just as he, as he said. Um, Poland was our top country holding in 2017 and 2018. Um, oh, sorry, they were top country holding in 2017 and they dropped to number four in 2018. But that's two, three years after they elected the PIS government that's in power now. So um, yeah, things went pretty crazy, but it didn't show up in markets for a couple of years. In fact, Poland was the top performing market um, in the, in the emerging markets in 2017. So, um, you know, it, it, a lot of these politics and, and policies take time to actually play out in the economy or in markets. And, um, so it does, uh, there is a, there's a lag time in the time that there's a shift in, you know, political situations and the time that actually shows up in, in markets. 
So here's, here's another question I have for you. You know, when you're recalibrating and you're rebalancing it because mm-hmm. once a year, right? It's, it's just yeah. once a year. So, you know, when, when has there been a time where you've been like, huh, that's in there. Or then been another time where you're like, wait, why is that country not in there? You know, like I, I'm sure you do some follow-up yeah. research just to be like, what? Why? This doesn't make any sense. So I see that more on the negative end. Like, why is this country in here and should it really be in here? Um, so, for example, India, we have a small allocation too. And India is very well known for its, you know, terrible women's rights. And I t- tend to pay a little more attention to women's rights. Um, and so when it first made it into the index, I was a little surprised. And, um, but, but, you know, it does have, and also India is very protectionist. So they have some lower scores on the economic freedom side as far as, you know, trade and um, business regulations and so forth. So, um, but, you know, India is, we go by the scores. So this is like, it, it doesn't matter what my personal opinion is or my subjective, um, you know, uh, impression of the country is. Um, India is, you know, the biggest democracy in the world and the oldest democracy in the world. So, you know, it, it, it has a lot of potential, um, even though they have bad women's rights and they have, you know, protectionist policies and so forth. Um, there is a, a huge population of uh, very well-educated uh and very young demographics. And uh, so I, I think, and it's very entrepreneurial. Um, I think India does have a lot of potential, but that was one country that surprised me because of just the, all the things that I hear about their kind of women's rights issues. I mean, I have to ask, I mean, it, you know, especially hearing about women's rights issues in, in some of these countries that are well, specifically like in India. I yeah. mean, how, how, do, how do you feel, are you, I mean, it's kind of hard to just completely disassociate yourself even when you see that, right? I mean, yeah. how do you manage that? Um, yeah, so, so it is kind of, I, mean, I, I try to focus on the positives. <laughs> so, you know, like it's hard to do work like this because you're looking at depressing data all the time um, and you see things happening in countries like China, like things with Xinjiang, with Hong Kong, you know, you see this stuff all the time. Um, but you, you, there's a lot of positives focus on, you know, and there's a lot of very exciting things happening in some of these countries and emerging and frontier markets are, um, kind of really like divergent as far as freedom levels go. I mean, you see the way that Taiwan and South Korea have handled the, the coronavirus crisis completely differently than say China has, right. Um, Vietnam even has handled it very well. Um, besides the coronavirus crisis, there's other things like Estonia is the freest frontier market and they do some really amazing things as far as like digital citizenship and things like that. Um, so I try to focus on the positives on these, but also I work with a lot of human rights organizations like the human rights foundation where I get to meet like real freedom fighters that are, you know, getting jailed, getting banned in countries for the work that they do. And they kind of provide a lot of inspiration for me because I see people on the front lines um, fighting for this, you know, it's hard to sell freedom to Wall Street. Let's be honest, right? Nobody cares, right? <laughs> so, um, so you know, by being around activists and seeing that people, you know, give, giving their lives for these causes, um, it inspires me to kind of do this work. But I want to go back to um, the question of what other countries surprised you. So another country that surprised me, and I'm sorry, I just thought of this is kind of um, off off order, but um, Brazil did not make it into the index um, in, since like 2019 or so. So, um, so. so it hasn't been in the index for a couple of years. And 
Um, one of the reasons is that is because our data sources um, account for homicides as a, a right to life kind of. So, you know, if you're, you can't walk down the street without getting killed, then, you know, that's not, you're not, not really free. And so I don't think, I don't know of any other data sources that account for, for that. Um, so, so as a result, Brazil got a very low overall score due to being the highest homicide country in the world. Um, and so that surprised me, but seeing what's happened in Brazil in the, in the time since, I'm glad it wasn't in the index. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think this, you know, it count, it, using the data and not looking at other factors that are subjective is extremely helpful and extremely important in this type of investing. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about the, the work taste craze, Bolsonaro's a whole, yeah. <laughs> a whole nother story. See, I mean, exciting, exciting stuff, right? Emerging markets are fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, one, one idea I had when you were talking earlier, when I asked about, you know, how it's difficult with the diso disassociation and, you know, when you see, you know, just still atrocities, especially towards women in some of these countries, you know, it's interesting because at the same time, you know, those are, those are still economies. There's, these are still countries mm -hmm. that they're, they, you know, even the freedom fighters will say, look, we're not ready to just give up the country altogether. You know, we want to change it and we still need financial support, you know, and mm -hmm. this is a way in which it can support. I mean, am I kind of, Right there. Yeah. So, so the thing about investing in unfree markets is that um, a lot of these, mar in, let's use China as an example, right? So, yes, we do want to support the people on the ground in China. It's not the, the it's not the people that um, we don't like. It's the government, right? So, um, the reason why we use these country level metrics is because governments are in the best position to uh, protect human and economic freedoms. So. Um, you know, Nike operating in, in North Korea and Nike operating in South Korea would be two different companies. And this is a hypothetical example, obviously. So, you know, in one country you have slavery and child labor and the other one you have wealth creation and, you know, innovation, right? So uh, it's not the company level, it's the country level that we have to look at. Um, but also in some of these unfree markets, you, whether you're a private company or whether you're a um, state-owned company, right? Um, you do have to answer to the government. So for example, in China, if the Chinese government says to Alibaba, hey, um, we want all of your citizen data, all the data of all of your users, um, because you know it's a national security issue, or we're using it to keep people safe during the corona you know, situation. Um, it's very unlikely that Alibaba or Tencent, for example, could say no to that, right? And still survive. So um, so, so the, the problem there is you're investing in a country where, um, the companies themselves, even private companies still have to answer to the state. Um, so it's not really investing in the people you're investing in something that does help the, um, the government. And if you look at the, the returns in the Chinese market over the last 10 years, it's basically flat. So if you look at Shanghai composite index, for the last 10 years. And my friend Jin Choi did a, um, a post on this, um, which I can link uh, or I can give you to link if you want. Um, China has been basically been flat in their index over the last 10 years, but China has had a lot of growth. That's undeniable. Well, why is that? It's because they don't have the, the rule of law and the investor protections in place to make sure investors get that, get to take 
participate in that growth, right? So some of that, you know, uh, you know, rising uh, economic growth gets siphoned off to state actors, to people that they want it to go to and not the investors themselves. So it's, as from an investor perspective, it's absolutely important to be in a country that has protections and rule of law and, you know, just protections for investors in place. So another question I have, and look, every fund ETF, everyone's gotten killed, right? Up yeah. that, right. I mean, you know, I don't yeah. even need to list the performance. I'm sure people probably realize that. I mean, yeah. but aside from that, because that's not really the main point of my question, it's, it's really has to do with, you know, the ETF construction and now having to deal with this pandemic. I mean, the, 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 what the funds or the, I keep saying, I'm sorry, the ETF <laughs> has only been, has only really been out there since 2012. That was even before, you know, or excuse me, that was after the 2008 recession, yep. you know, and now we're dealing with not just recession, a, a, well, we'll leave that to the experts to call a recession, <laughs> okay. but, but a pandemic, you know, yes. and that that's totally Un I mean, unprecedented. Yeah, situation. you know, so, so I mean, you know, you Sorry might be, no, you know, so you must be looking at this and just like, I mean, you can do all the research you can and have the metrics in place and, right. you know, have the freedom metrics and whatnot, but I mean, it might look completely different for 2021, especially if you like, how do you, how do you recalibrate for, for, uh, for the variable of stay at home orders? Some places are longer than yeah. others, you know, like how, how does that now work for 2021? Have you guys thought about that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it's going. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, the things that we've thought about up to now have been thrown out the window, you know, as far as not only this, but all investing. And um, you know, to your point, I think that that's an interesting point because um a lot of the traditional metrics we use are not going to apply here or are not going to work the same way after this. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and I work with a lot of very smart people, obviously at, you know, off architect, for example, and they're all PhDs and they're all, you know, just these ninja quants and, you know, any kind of quantitative metric you can throw at them, they can do something with it. Right. Um, but, and they, and they probably know exactly, you know, which ones are better, which ones are worse to use, you know, for whatever purpose. And, um, but, but, you know, now everything is just like, it doesn't even work as well. You look at the most, the, the most, you know, revered investors in our circles, right? For example, like Cliff Asness, you know, um, just wrote the, the, another value article, right? <laughs> that value is not dead. We all know it's not dead. You know, it's, and he's, he's completely right. And I haven't, I haven't gone through the article, so I'm not going to quote anything about it here. And he's brilliant. Um, but you know, a lot of these, these, um, a lot of these strategies have not worked out in recent past. And now we're even looking at, well, how long is it going to take for it to come back? So I think investing, um, is an art as well as a science. Um, I think there's, there's things that cause you to have good returns that, you know, don't take any PhD at all. For example, rebalancing causes you to have good returns, right? <laughs> or better returns. You know, it's like a rebalancing um, premium, I guess. Like you rebalance, you buy low, you sell high. You know, it comes that it just happens and, and then you get, you know, better outcome as a result. So that doesn't take any kind of metric or any kind of, you know, quantitative thinking at all. Um, so a lot of 
a lot of, and, and, and those guys that I mentioned are the first ones to tell you that luck plays a huge part in it. Timing plays a huge part in it. Um, so to me, having been kind of looking at this through the lens of, I guess, um, I don't know if, if I shared this with you before, but I was kind of a, like a creative, uh, I almost went into creative fields instead of, instead of finance. Uh, but I look at this from, the, from, from, from a lens of art versus science and you know it's a combination of the two and we do use very quantitative factors um, but um, the the art of it i think is important as well and you know you can you can look at investing as just a way to get higher returns or you can also look at it as a way to express something that's important to you and so people that invest in freedom i think or in in, in you know the freedom 100 index and its you know corresponding etf are um, are looking at, at it not just from a scientific perspective. And even if, like, so let's say, for example, China, you know it's going to perform better in the next five years. I think these people would still not invest there, or Russia, or Saudi Arabia, right? So I think for them, it's more of a form of expression. It's more of a statement to stand up for freedom in a world where it's declining, and not so much um, just for returns. And they're not looking at it just scientifically if that makes any sense. So anything that 100%. changed in the investing world um, doesn't change how you feel about freedom. And so for, for my investors, you know, I, we didn't see any redemptions throughout this. Um, so hopefully that'll continue. But I think for them, they're looking at a very long term and they're saying, hey, in the long term, probably emerging markets are going to go up. They're probably going to go up faster than domestic markets based on valuations. But who cares about that? You know, we want to stand up for freedom regardless. And it's easy to stand up for freedom in um, the developed markets because most of those countries are pretty free anyway. So wherever you invest, you know, you're going to get pretty clear data on other countries. You're going to get pretty clear um, idea of what you're doing and what you're investing in. In the emerging markets, not so much because there's such a huge discrepancy in the freedom levels. So if they're going to bet on emerging markets, they're saying, you know, we're going to bet on the freer ones because, you know, free people drive those markets. So, so yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with all of the metrics and everything that we know as far as investing after this, um, but that doesn't change the, the core principles of, you know, freer countries do better in the long run. They're more dynamic. They're, you know, less stagnant. They're more efficient in their, you know, labor and capital usage. They should recover faster because they should be more innovative and flexible. But sometimes that backfires. You know, sometimes these very unfree markets Sorry, <laughs> you were going to say something. Sometimes these unfree markets, you know, can interfere a lot in the short term. So, you know, we've seen reports from Bloomberg that, you know, after Chinese New Year holiday, um, you know, when everything was locked down, that China um, banned selling by large institutions. So, you know, that, you know, if you have that type of situation, then yeah, you can prop up your, you know, stock prices pretty well, you know, in the short term. I don't think that's sustainable though. Um, and so I do think that freer countries have more sustainable growth, but, and, the, and true growth is driven by um, people and the creative ingenuity of, of human beings. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that um, it's a better way to invest, you know, using freer markets, but sometimes that can backfire. And when the auto autocratic countries do interfere a lot in their markets with good results, it's a strategy that could underperform. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, what's interesting in thinking about all this. I mean, I'm thinking for the rebalancing at, at the end of the year, beginning of next year, 
there might be a bigger pool to choose from. I mean, I would think that oh, yeah. there's, there's probably going to be a few of these companies because look, it, it's, we may not think of some of these company or these countries now as emerging markets. When, you know, you look, you think Mexico, you probably, I don't know if you would even really think of that as an emerging market, especially with this proximity to U S and Canada, you know, but, uh, there might be others that you might not even think of as a result of the global downturn that now mm. are part of this and it becomes almost a value opportunity. Right. No, I think Mexico is a good example of one of those markets that's going to probably benefit from, from all of this because of the, um, the uh, diversification of supply chains out of China. So Mexico, Vietnam, probably Taiwan, South Korea as well, um, because they have their own companies invested a lot in China that they now have to pull out and either put back into their own countries or use, you know, India, for example, like our top holding TSM, just Taiwan Semiconductor, just announced that they're going to move a lot of manufacturing to India. So a lot of these, com these countries like India, Vietnam, uh, Mexico, they're, they're offering a lot of incentives to these companies to move their production. Um, away from China into these countries. And I think that is a trend that was already in place before Corona, but now is just, you know, very urgent to do. So um, you don't wanna, that's just diversification. It's not, it's not anything against China. It's like any country, anything could happen. So you don't want, for example, 40% in China, you don't want 40% of your investments or your production in China, right? So um, I think, or in any country. So I think that was just a diversification play uh, but that has been accelerated at this point. All right. So another question I have to ask, because this, I mean, I can only imagine this. This sounds like just so much fun every year, especially when you see the new data and you're going through and you're trying yeah. to understand what got in, what didn't get in. I mean, were there any, I, I, this is kind of a variation of a question I just asked you, but um, sure. have, have, were there any, at least in the past year, and then you could still see as ones that just missed it, but you could see a lot of good things starting to happen and potentially might get an inclusion in the next year or so? Yeah, it's hard to predict, but um, Colombia has been very exciting to me. Colombia and Malaysia are kind of on the watch list, on the, on the fringe. Um, I don't decide if they get in those, just the scores. Um, so Colombia has kind of, and, and you'll see this in a lot of these countries that are more free, is that they take a leadership role in the region. So you saw that with Taiwan. You know, when Hong Kong first started having their protests around this time last year, they, you know, supported them from day one. They took in refugees. Uh, you know, they, they were just very supportive. And um, Colombia has kind of been that country in their region. Um, they have traditionally had a lot of problems with drug cartels, right? So, uh, the, but their new government has tried to, to rein that in, and they've had some, some, some level of success. Uh, but they've really tried to help their neighbors in Venezuela. So Venezuela, having being the most unfree country economically, yes, at least, uh, in the world, they, uh, I think Venezuela and Syria are tied for the, the least free. Um, you know, a lot of Venezuelans have um, become refugees in Colombia, and, ref and Colombia has been very generous in taking them all in and just, uh, and, and they're going to, I believe, get a huge boost from that human capital that is just you know flowing in at record numbers you know so i think um colombia is an exciting thing to watch malaysia had some interesting political um events where you know this one guy that was you know previously uh, you know one of their leaders was jailed and then he won 
an election and with back in power. And then they had some people, people, you know, resign. So they've had a lot of shifting in their political leadership and things that are, have not happened before. So there's some hope for change. Um, Argentina, right, has been one where there was a lot of hope for change. And um, there are some strategies out there that instead of, so we use the absolute freedom level. We don't use freedom momentum, except when it goes very fast on the downside, but we don't use like upward freedom momentum. Like there's some strategies that use which, which countries have the most upward momentum possibilities. And then what you do is you're, you're basically investing in the worst countries because they have the most potential for growth, right? As far as freedom. And we didn't want to do that. So we just used the, the, you know, absolute freedom level. Um, but Argentina was one of those countries that was exciting for those types of strategies. And, you know, we were looking at it as well, but, you know, again, I don't decide. Uh, we did not include Argentina when they became uh, classified as an emerging market. Um, but that's one to watch as well. Got it. And, you know, I have to ask, I ask this to all my guests. It's one of my favorite questions to ask. What investing experience would you say has taught you the most in your career so far? Hmm, that's interesting. So I, um, I, think I, I think I've told you about this before, but I, I don't know if this has taught me the most or if it's just confirming you know, biases. But <laughs> uh, a long time ago, before I had any money, I bought one token share of Google. Um, it was 2000, I believe, 11, um, when they stood up to the Chinese government on censorship. So the Chinese government wanted them to censor their um, search engine. They didn't want to do it. So instead of working with the Chinese government, they just left. And um, I really respected that. So, you know, but their share price was at the time like 500 or something. Um, so I just bought like one share. I didn't have any money. Um, so, <laughs> and then that share multiplied over time. And um, so, you know, that is not a really great quantitative method of investing. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I just bought that as an expression of, hey, I like what they did and I want to, you know, stand with them. And so, and it worked out. So, you know, now that share has been basically, you know, highly appreciated security that was donated into a charitable gift account, you know, so I liked doing that. Um, and I think I, I like taking a stand for, what I believe in in my investments, I think it's important um, in a world where money drives power, right? And so uh, the money that we funnel into some of these very autocrat, you know, very unfree regimes um, gives their governments le le further legitimacy. Um, it drives liquidity into their markets where they can take advantage of us, you know, as foreign investors. Um, and I don't want to do that with my money. And so to me, my money is an expression of my values and um, I enjoy investing that way. Now, I, I do think that I do enjoy, you know, the, the other types of strategies as well and um, absolutely believe in value investing, um, size, you know, momentum, those types of other factors. But um, for me, I think, I have to invest in something that I have high conviction in. And in a market like this, especially like we're having here, um, there's been lots of times, and of course I don't, full, I don't only invest in, in the, the freedom strategy. I also have you know, uh, US equities and bonds and you know, developed market. So um, during this downturn, I've noticed that I never once thought about selling my 
Freedom 100 position, even though it's the biggest position I have. It's very overweight. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, the, the other positions I, you know, had to have people talk me out of taking action in, right? So, um, which I'm glad and always have people around you that will do that for you. Uh, there's, for the average investor, I think, you know, an advisor is, is huge um, in their success, you know, outcome in the long run. Um, but, but yeah, I think investing is something that you believe in, helps you stay in it for the long term and uh, not sell at the worst time. So that was just one kind of experience I had that kind of stuck with me. All right, Perth. Well, we're there with that. Where can my audience go and find more information about you and Life and Liberty Indexes? Yeah, so lifeandlibertyindexes.com is our website. Um, you can also get to the fund site from there. Um, that's the index site. And uh, I am on Twitter at Perth underscore toll. Well, Perth, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, please continue to stay safe. Thanks Good for luck. having me. Yeah, no, yeah, it was great to you. have you on. <laughs> thank you.